Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On the pandemic front, we've seen numbers trending in the right direction and the vaccine rollout has been ramping up. But when will we all be able to get back to normal? The next few months will probably look as it has. Continued mask wearing and social distancing, but the summer could be the closest to normal that we've seen in a long time. We'll speak to Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, about how the next few seasons are going to look. So I think spring 2021 looks a lot like what people have been doing for the past year. Of course, people have been doing all sorts of different things. Some people have been going to work. Some people have been working from home. Some people have been dining out. Some people have been eating in every night. But whatever it is that people have been doing, I think we can expect for them to have to do more of it uh, for the next couple months. The big question mark that will determine a lot of how cautious people will need to be in these coming months is what happens with the variants that we've heard so much about. We don't really know how much damage they'll do, but they could end up circulating quite a bit and doing a lot of damage. They could also end up not playing much of a factor. So that's kind of the thing that we're looking out for on the scale of the next couple months. But in terms of daily life, daily life looks pretty similar to what it's been. The way you put it, I think, was really put well, cautious. We'll still have to be in this in this mode of mask wearing, social distancing, doing all the same things we've been doing. As you mentioned, it's different for a lot of people, but that's where we're at right now. And beyond that, you know, as the vaccines start to roll out more to more Americans, people see other people getting the vaccine. So that hesitancy will drop also. Summer 2021, what are we looking at? I have to say, I've done a lot of interviews over the course of this pandemic with experts wondering what they're thinking about. And I came away from these so much more optimistic and even a bit surprised after these interviews that I did. Summer, they were saying, really should be great. They widely expect things to just look so much better in a lot of different dimensions. A lot of the things that we've not been able to do, like have friends and family over indoors or dine inside restaurants safely, all these things that a lot of people have hesitated to do should become much, much safer. And that includes the whole range of things like going into work and having people be in person at schools. Whether all of those things will phase in at once is probably not going to happen, but summer just should look a lot better in a lot of ways, in a way that for me as somebody who's been reporting on this stuff for a year now, it just is so much more encouraging than it has been. And you can remember what it was like last summer. People were already getting that first inkling of COVID fatigue. You know, the summer months were here. It was hot outside. You you know, it was safer to be outside. And people went out to the beaches. They went out and started doing a lot more stuff. In part, that's why we saw a couple of rises in cases and all. But yeah, I can definitely expect people to be in that mode again. Things of concern still, you know, the timing for vaccinations for kids. You know, will that be in place by that time? And you also made mention, you know, it won't be a full comeback. Maybe indoor concerts, full attendance at sporting events might not be ready just yet then. The expectation of the people I talk to is that summer looks quite a bit more like the summer of 2019 than like the summer of 2020. It won't be entirely summer of 2019. As you said, concerts probably won't be back. Packed sports stadiums probably won't be back. Also, international travel probably won't be back. There are important limitations, but... As far as how the summer should compare to what we've been through so far, it really should be a tremendous departure. 
fall of 2021 and winter 2022, you know, the beginning of the year, what are we looking at there? Because the concern also is, you know, with the colder months, we see a, a, an increase in, in flu cases. Obviously, other respiratory things, COVID will be among them. You know, we'll really see kind of what these variants that we've been really worried about, how much more transmissible they'll be when it gets colder again. This is one of the things that I think people might struggle to wrap their minds around. I certainly did as I thought about it. There is a chance that we have a fantastic summer, as I've just described, and at the same time, fall and winter and the colder months end up being not so great. The experts that I spoke with generally expect there to be some sort of uptick in cases and deaths in the colder months. The big question is how much that would be. There's a chance that it really is quite small, in which case we get to start reintroducing things like concerts and other things that would represent sort of full quote unquote normalcy. There's also a chance, as you noted, that the variants end up doing something weird and unexpected. That seems like a less likely possibility, but I would say in general that even if summer is excellent, there is this sort of chance that the fall and winter are not so great and represent a backslide. And then finally, spring, summer 2022. So really a whole other year out will be kind of back to that quote unquote normal. You know, what is going to be normal after the pandemic is still yet to be seen, but that's when we'll be a lot looser with our mask wearing and our social distancing. You know, we'll be in the habit now of being with family and friends again. So that's kind of the timeline for this to really resolve itself, we hope. Yeah, exactly. I think this is where, if we're making predictions, this is where we start to use the words maybe or probably a lot less. The spring and summer of 2022, once it starts getting warm next year, I think that's when people widely expect life to be very, very, very similar to what it used to be just in terms of what we're able to do. Obviously, the world will be so much different in so many other ways, but it definitely looks very good at that point. Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. On the tech front, Google is phasing out third-party cookies and will not introduce other forms of identifiers to track individuals as they browse the internet. Instead, they will be implementing something called a privacy sandbox, which doesn't track individual people and instead groups them into crowds of similar interests. For more on Google's embrace of a privacy-first internet, we'll speak to Mitchell Clark, news writer at The Verge. Google has had this plan for about a year now, and it's a two-year plan to phase out third-party tracking cookies from their browser, Google Chrome. And what they want to move to is what they call a more privacy-focused approach, where they are still going to be tracking your interests, but it's something that's happening on your computer instead of in someone else's server or at some ad company. And that will entail basically them tracking you not as an individual, but as part of a group so that they are serving advertisements not specifically directed at you, but people with your general interests. Yeah, I think they're calling it a privacy sandbox. And people have kind of likened it to being in a crowd of people at a concert, let's say. So we know you're all fans of that music because you're there at that concert. We don't know you individually, but we know you were there and we're kind of going to group you into this. And that's how they're going to start targeting ads at you. That's Google's plan. And that will be using a different system than third-party cookies. Again, that privacy sandbox is one of the options that they're looking at. So far, it's not available to the public yet. This is just their future plan for how they plan on doing it. But it's also worth noting that Google is not the only advertiser in town. 
they're not the only ones that run advertising. So other companies will have to come up with their own solutions that don't involve third-party cookies because they will be blocked in Chrome and they're already blocked in Firefox and Safari and some other browsers. Yeah, so these major players are already trending towards this. I mean, it seems like the advertising industry is preparing for a complete phase out of this and they got to look for other workarounds, other ways to get in on this. Google is doing this at a time right now when there's a lot of scrutiny on how people are tracked and targeted for advertisements, but they're doing that also. They mentioned in the blog post that they put out about it, you know, they're doing it for consumers too. They're listening to people saying that they don't like this type of action. It is to get ahead of regulations that haven't been made yet, especially in the U.S., but it is also just a bad customer experience when you're on a website and then the next website you go to is advertising products that you just looked at. No one likes that. First of all, it doesn't make them feel safe. And then it doesn't give you warm feelings about the product because, ew, it feels like it's following me around the internet now. It always feels like you can be talking to somebody not on the internet and then once you hit the web, you're getting targeted for something you were just talking about. I mean, that's how deep these trackers go and why you think your devices might be listening to you because the tracking is that good. There's always jokes about it. Yeah, I was reading an article just the other day and they said, well, just by reading this article, now you're going to see ads for this thing that we were talking about. I don't know if any companies have actually implemented too much listening to you, but it does definitely feel that way sometimes. On these other advertisers on their part, how are they going to get by if these third-party cookies are already getting out? Because, you know, one of the other interesting parts of it, too, is Google said third-party trackers we're going to get rid of, but first-party tracking they're still going to do. So if you're using Google products, things like YouTube, they'll still track you there. So what is the ecosystem going to look like after this? So that really depends. And Google does say that while they want to take the more privacy-centered approach, that there will be other advertisers who don't. And they do have other ways to track you other than third-party cookies. There's fingerprinting, which is finding unique details about your device and using that to track you that way. And then there's good old-fashioned asking for your email and you giving it to them and tracking that email along other sites that are in a group. So let's say some sites have gathered together to share information and they get that information when you put your email into them, which is in some ways a more private approach because you are knowingly giving them uh, your email, but you don't necessarily know that they're all working together unless you're actually looking into that. Mitchell Clark, news writer at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally for this week, scientists have been talking to people in their sleep and they're answering back. Researchers have been able to establish two-way communication with people while they're in a lucid dreaming state. Participants in the study were asked math questions and responded back with eye movements and facial expressions. For more on how this all works, we'll speak to Karen Conkley, PhD student at Northwestern University and one of the researchers on the project. We decided to use lucid dreamers because there is a history of lucid dreamers communicating out of dreams that's been studied since about the 80s. So if you're in a dream... It's different than sleep talking because your whole body is paralyzed. And so that's in REM sleep. And so you can't normally move your mouth or anything like that. And so we have to rely on signals that dreamers can still give once they're completely paralyzed that we can monitor from the outside. So dreamers will make series of eye movements like left, right, left, right, that stand out dramatically from the natural eye movements that happen in um, REM sleep. And then 
um, or for instance, dreamers can also twitch. And so like the French team use kind of twitching of the dreamers facial muscles. And since those signals are prearranged in advance, if a dreamer makes those, we can monitor that objectively and say, yes, they're definitely sleeping. And also they just answered our question. So it was really exciting to see that in action. You know, for those that might not be very familiar, lucid dreaming is, you know, when you're inside your dream, you realize that you're dreaming and you don't, you know, immediately wake up, obviously. And then a lot of people say sometimes you can go in and control the dream, all that stuff. It's very interesting. So a little more on to the study then. Obviously, you said you got in contact with people that had some experience in this. But how did you get across that we're going to be asking you questions and, and know that they were going to either understand them? Like, how does that work? How, did you have to train them in this? Each team who was involved in the study, one in the USA, one in Germany, one in France, one in Netherlands, each team conducted the study independently and used different methods to induce lucid dreams and also some different methods to ask questions. About one in two people has one lucid dream at least in their life. And I think about 25, 20% of people are more frequent lucid dreamers and they'll have maybe one lucid dream a month. But we needed in our study people to have lucid dreams while they were in the lab in the next two hours or something. So um, in the U.S., we trained participants who some had experience with lucid dreaming, others didn't necessarily, and we trained them to have a lucid dream before they fell asleep. So what we did was we associated a sound that sounded just like a beeping noise, beep, 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 with a a lucid state of mind while they were awake. So like, as you notice the sound, you become lucid, bring your attention to your thoughts, kind of like a meditation. And then we presented the sound again when they were dreaming. And in a original study that we demonstrated this technique, people had lucid dreams half of the time when we did this protocol. So you know, although it's only half the time, that's really good for lucid dreaming studies. So we and the Dutch team use this method again to induce lucid dreams in the lab. And then those participants would tell us that they're lucid dreaming. We'd say like, okay, if you know you're dreaming, look left, right, left, right, you know, pretty fast two times or something. And then we'd see that while they're sleeping and we'd say, okay, this person knows they're in a dream. Time to ask a question. So what were those questions and what kind of answers did you get? The four teams conducted the studies independently, and yet three of them independently decided we should ask math problems. And the reason (laughs) for that is is not because we were, you know, inherently interested in people's math abilities during dreams, although it is interesting. But it was really because we wanted to ask questions that we knew the answers to, that there would be, you know, a variety of responses for that the dreamers could execute without having to, like, memorize a whole scheme of responses. You know, yes means this, and no means this, and maybe means this. Um... So that's why we asked math problems. And we just presented them in, you know, my voice very softly for our team. The German team presented them in Morse code. And then the dreamers heard, heard those problems inside the dream. And then they just answered them like, you know, look left, right twice if the answer is two. And so one of our examples, the dreamer was sleeping and we just asked eight minus two, just like that. And then they answered two in their dream. And we asked it again, they answered two again. Some of the people said the question would be, how does a person perceive this in their dream? And uh, some of the respondents said it kind of morphed in their dream and it seemed as if maybe God was talking to them, you know, some type of grander voice was coming out at them. So I think that's a really interesting question. You know, you're kind of asking a question from another realm of existence and like, how does that filter into the dream? In other examples, it gets somehow distorted or incorporated into the dream 
So, for instance, the French team had that example where the dreamer was at a party and they just heard God talking to them, <laughs> a voice, you know, from, you know, this disembodied voice. Or um, in the Netherlands, one example, the dreamer was in the car and it was like they heard it over the radio. And wow. the, the German example had some, the German team had some great examples where since they used flashing lights in Morse code, there was one dream where like the lights started flickering in the room and it was Morse code. And then, you know, he found a fish tank and that was flashing in Morse code and then wow. it broke. So we went outside and the clouds were blinking in, in Morse code. And so, you know, there's all these interesting ways that the information can get filtered in. And I guess one thing that surprised us is we were worried it would get too filtered. So we were worried we would say like eight minus six and they would hear like six and six or something right. that like wasn't answerable. And that actually, you know, it didn't, it wasn't clear that that happened, you know, very much. Um, the, the proportion of correct responses was really high and there wasn't a lot of clear times when it seemed like dreamers heard something that was a really garbled version of what we heard. It seemed like they mostly generally heard what we said or it was like, or they didn't hear it at all. So now that you were able to make contact with people while they were lucid dreaming, you were able to get some responses to varying degrees of success. You know, you have to kind of keep working at this and looking into it. What do we do with this knowledge now? I know you mentioned something about there could be possibilities for dream therapies, things like that. So what do we do with this knowledge? We were thinking, you know, if a dreamer could give a signal from their dream, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with a nightmare, then maybe somebody on the other side could say, like, you know, originally we had an idea that we could just present an alarm, you know, and that two-way interaction could help wake the dreamer up. Or, the, you know, more advice could be given to them, more support. You know, it's kind of common to become lucid in a dream and not be able to control it, especially if it's a bad dream. And so, like, if you could have someone on the other side who has that, that logical advantage of wake, then, like, sometimes you don't have access to all those mental resources in a dream. Even though you're lucid, you're still a little bit confused. Or somebody put it yesterday. Sometimes it can be as though you're drunk. <laughs> like, um, it's <laughs> right. just like you don't have necessarily all the access to higher functions all the time. And so if you had somebody who's awake on the other end of that saying like, no, remember it's, it's a dream. And like, you can face this monster at, or, you know, try to integrate this experience. Then, you know, when people kind of face their nightmare monsters, they can have, you know, their nightmare can stop right. um, after that can be like a powerful experience. Or another one that we thought was that like artists might be able to use it for that same reason. You know, if you're in a dream, you might not be able to if you don't have two-way communication, you might not be able to transmit, you know, your, your work or your ideas right away. But if you could, you know, have somebody on the other end, they could help guide you and remind you what you wanted to do. And then you could kind of say, you know, you could start to give some information about, you know, what you're experiencing in the dream. And then there's really interesting scientific right. applications as well. Like using that, you could kind of say, well, are, are, is what people report after, you know, waking up from a dream, how close is that to what, they're reporting during the dream, you know, are dream reports accurate or are they sometimes distorted or forgotten? And like, can we say how much, how often that happens is a kind of a big, big question in dream research that would be really cool to get some information on. Karen Conkley, PhD student at Northwestern University, one of the researchers on this project, two-way communication with dreamers. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.